Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 230. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 230 you're listening to. My guest today is Chris Shaw, who's a four-time Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, mixer, and musician. He has worked with a wide variety of people, including Public Enemy, A Tribe Called Quest, Run DMC, LL Cool J, Weezer, Bob Dylan, Jeff Buckley, Soul Asylum, Sheryl Crow, uh, Death Cab for Cutie. Shall I go on? Yeah. He has worked with a large, large number of people over the years, and uh, he is my guest today. Chris Shaw coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee. Let's talk a little bit about planning ahead. So you've got a successful studio business or you're a successful freelance engineer and the work is coming in and things are working out great for you, right? And if that's wrong, well, that's a different topic. But for right now, for those of you that this whole audio business is working for, fantastic. You're a location sound person, a game sound person, studio person. The phone just won't quit ringing. Well, my question to you is, what are you going to do when the phone stops ringing? Have you accounted for that possibility? Are you planning ahead? Are you saving money in case that day comes? Are you diversifying what you're doing in case that happens? And you know, when you diversify, as we've spoken about before, it's like a number of pillars. And if the pillars are holding up the building, if one of the pillars goes, then you have the other pillars to hold up the building. But if it's only one pillar, then the whole building crumbles and you're out of work. And then you're making decisions based on stress, which is not a good way to make decisions, especially when it comes to having, you know, your family involved and the responsibilities that you carry, maybe their car payments, uh, rent on your studio, your mortgage, whatever. So you need to be prepared. You need to make sure that you are not stuck if the phone stops ringing. And many of you might say, well, why would the phone stop ringing? Well, let's ask those who were exclusively working on hair metal at one point in their career and Nirvana hit, right? That's the day hair metal died. So had those guys and gals working in the world of hair metal planned ahead, they'd be okay. But if they didn't, well, you know, then they're maybe they're getting out of the business. So my advice to you is make sure you are really thinking ahead. It's like chess. You have to think two to three moves ahead and you've got a plan for what the long term holds. It's very easy to get complacent. It's very easy to sit back and go, well, I don't have anything to worry about. I got, you know, uh, a few thousand in, in the bank account now to kind of get me through the next month or, t- or two. And I got a little bit of savings and I've started a little bit of a retirement thing. No, you've got to think bigger than that. You really have to plan for disaster. I don't mean to sound dire, but if something happens, you cannot be in a position where you're compromised. So think it through and also be open to doing other types of audio work. That doesn't just mean if you're a studio guy, oh, I don't want to do voiceovers or books on tape. That's partially what I'm talking about. But the other part of that equation is think about, can you teach? Can you come up with courses? Our friends out there in the world of courses, Pyramix and Mix of the Masters and Warren's ProMix Academy, those are all great things. And those are generating income for not only those that are creating those videos, but those that are in those videos. So if that's your bag, great. Explore that. Explore all the possibilities and don't have such an ego to think that you are uh, above doing any other kind of work. 
in terms of, you know, the world of audio. Plan ahead, think it through, don't get complacent, and be open to other possibilities. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Chris Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with me here today and making time for me. Thanks for asking me. Man, you've had quite a career thus far, and I want to go back to the beginning of it. My understanding is you started out as an intern at Green Street in New York, mm -hmm. but I want to back up a little bit before that. When did audio become relevant for you? When did it become something of that you thought, hmm, I could make a living doing this? Well, I, I was a guitar player in a lot of really crappy cover bands in high school in my first year in college. And I was kind of, I guess I was a budding producer even back then because I was the, the annoying guy that was telling everybody, you know, they were playing their parts wrong. And so I started recording our rehearsals, you know, just so I can point out mistakes people made. And as time grew on, I started making, taking more time during rehearsals, trying to figure out the spot to put this one really crappy microphone in the room with the band so it would pick up everything equally. That was kind of the start, but the thing that really started the whole ball rolling for me is as a kid, I was a big fan of prog rock bands because I was a victim of my brother's record collection, you know, <laughs> and so I was listening to King Crimson and my brother was really into like Philip Glass and Terry Riley and Steve Reich and John Cage and all the prog rock bands like Yes and Genesis and stuff like that. But circling back around to King Crimson, he spent the semester at home and he'd gotten a copy of Robert Fripp's first solo record, or it's actually his only solo record, theoretically, called Exposure. And it was the first time I ever heard Frippertronics, which is basically the old school way of doing looping. 
I didn't know how he was doing it, and so my brother showed me the back of a Brian Eno album called Back of Ambient Music, and it shows the, the method of doing uh, sound on sound using two studers side by side. Mm-hmm. So you put them next to each other, you use one reel of tape, and you thread it across both machines, and you put the machine on the left and record, the machine on the right and playback, and you feed the output of the right machine back into the left, into the record thing. So basically you got a very long tape delay that can be as long as you wanted, depending on how far apart the machines were or how fast they were running. And you get basically you could do that whole sound on sound thing. I, you know, I come from like a kind of a lower middle class background and I couldn't ask my mom and dad to buy me a pair of studers or a pair of reel to reels to do it. So I hacked it together using a pair of tabletop cassette decks by, you know, taking apart two cassettes, drilling holes in the sides of the shells and threading one reel, one thing of tape, spool of tape from one cassette into the other and putting them into both machines. And I plugged the output of the second machine into one input of my guitar amp, my guitar into the other input, and I took the line out of that guitar amp and put it in the first machine. So I basically had a Fripertronics thing using two cassettes. And the thing that was very funny about it is that like, they were mismatched cassette decks, so either one was too fast, one was too slow, so the pitch would gradually shift and go down, or gradually shift and go back up, and the tape would tighten up and break. And so that I got obsessed with that. And a couple of years later after that, I ran to a friend of mine who was in a band who was a couple of years older than me, and he was going to NYU, and he was taking audio courses at the Institute of Audio Research in New York City. And I saw him on the train one afternoon with, you know, a copy of Mix Magazine, a couple of audiobooks, and I was like, what's that all about? He says, well, I'm studying being a recording engineer. And I'm like, you mean this a living? You can make a living doing stuff like that? He's like, yeah, absolutely. And so coming out of high school, I was either going to be a, a musician, a recording engineer, and I, th- I thought recording engineer probably better gig because there were guitar players who were way better than me and younger than me. So I, I just started going to NYU and taking audio courses there as well as electronic music courses. And I started my, I did my internship at Green Street, and that's basically how I got my job at Green Street. How did you get that internship? I went hunting door to door at every studio in New York City. I went to like Hit Factory, Skyline, Avatar, uh, Electric Lady, and they all said no. And the last place I went to is Green Street, which is about four blocks off of campus. And I figured they were inundated with, you know, interns there. And it turns out they'd never had one before. So I was like their first intern. And the funny thing was that when I was sitting in a lobby waiting to be interviewed for, for an internship, I'm looking at all the records on the wall, and it's all these dance records and a, a ton of, like, old, old hip-hop records. And being the musical snob that I was, the thought of working at a hip-hop studio just was not very appealing to me whatsoever. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this stuff. You know, I, I was a snob. I thought hip-hop was like a fad. So we're talking like 1986. But I took the internship anyway because I needed, to, I needed to do it in order to graduate. And once I started working with hip-hop guys, first as an assistant and then eventually as, a, as an engineer, when I saw hip-hop records were put together by sampling various records and noises and turning them into beats and songs, to me, that just lined up fully with my whole love of John Cage and minimalist music and stuff like that. I was like, well, okay, well, I don't have to really get into the culture of this music, but I can totally get into the sonics of this and, and the methodology behind it, you know, sampling and beat making and programming. And that was right up my alley. And shortly after I started working with some hip-hop bands, Public Enemy started to work at Green Street, and we started working on their records. And they were the most radical hip-hop band at the time, and they were the noisiest and the loudest and the most atonal record band there was. And so we got along like bread and butter. is incredible. And after working with them for a while, I, I started getting into the whole cultural aspect of hip-hop as well and what a political message it could be. And it was just very intense. It was a very intense time. And we made these records that are considered groundbreaking. But at the time, when I was working on those records, I was like, these are just so weird. No one's going to buy this stuff. And it just turned out to be the exact opposite. It's so weird how you don't know the significance of, of what you're working on at the time. And yeah, I'm sure when you talk to any engineer, they'll tell you, like, ah, I didn't think it was going to be a hit record. When I was working on Weezer, I didn't think Weezer was going to be a big hit record. Do you find now with the experience that you've had, are you able to identify it a little easier now? Well, still with newer bands, no, I can't. Okay. I guess because I'm jaded or I've been through it a couple times, but, and also my, my career has progressed to the point that a lot of the people I work with are bigger artists and you just know that those records, when they come out, they're going to make a splash no matter what. Yeah. And at that point, I'm just trying to tread water to make sure I do a really good job recording the band. But at the time, no, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, after we, the first record I worked on with Public Enemy, and, and mind you, I have to remind you, everybody, that like I wasn't the only engineer working with Public Enemy. There's a whole crew of us at Green Street. There's like six of us. The guy who recorded the bulk of that stuff is this amazing engineer named Nick Sansano, and he did about 75% of all that. But I assisted with him, and I did, you know, I, I did a bunch of work with him on my own as well. But in general, 
what are the hard lessons you learned in that internship? Keep your mouth shut, <laughs> for one thing. Yeah, keep your mouth shut and pay attention. I learned more in the first six months of that internship than I probably learned in the entire four years I was going to NYU. Because what they don't teach you at schools is the dynamics of set recording sessions. It's a very sensitive balance between like the artist, the engineer, and the producer, and trying to achieve a creative goal. And there's always conflict in there. And the last thing that the three of those people want is an intern chiming in and saying his two cents as well. Yeah. Your job as an assistant or an intern is really to support the engineer. That's your only job. The thing that people have to realize as assistants or interns is that they are the forward face of the studio itself. The artist and the band and the producer, they hire a studio to do their work. And the only person in that room that represents the studio is either the assistant or the intern. So if either one of them have a bad attitude or screw up or don't do their job right, that's a reflection on the entire studio. So that was really important. And back in those days, it was ultra important because at the end of the night at three o'clock in the morning you had to make a cassette for the producer and the artist to get out and if you screw up that cassette you put a little dent in the reputation of the studio like god those guys can't even make cassettes who knows what kind of recordings they make so like at three in the morning you gotta be on your a game aligning the tape deck and making and playing it back and make sure everything's set right otherwise all that work is represented that you did that entire day comes out as a really shitty sounding cassette so that was actually a very 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 important job i've I had my ass chewed out a couple of times because i made a, a shitty sounding cassette you know with a low level or too much level you're basically mastering the, the the rough mix of the day so you have to make sure that you do a good job of that but nowadays it's just mp3s it's no, not even that big of a deal yeah yeah you are the forward face the, the front face of the studio hmm. so as an intern and assistant it's, it's really important i fired assistants for less and how did you transition out of that intern position i became a tape editor not just doing edits where you rearrange the song or whatever, but like actually trick editing, like dance edits where you would do stutter edits. I don't know if you're familiar with guys like the Latin Rascals or Chep Nunez or Chep Pettibone. It's basically, you know, we have a mix and it happens with dance mixes back then is that you would have a beat and then you would have like a rapid edit where you just string together 16th notes of snare drum across the entire mix. So it'd be like, ticka, 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 ticka. it just sounds like the whole mix stutters. You might have heard it. Something similar to that a while back with guys like Fatboy Slim, where his the mixes just sort of like begin to stutter, but you would do that with tape. Oh. And I learned how to do that from a guy by the name of John Roby, who he and Arthur Baker were, were huge because they did Planet Rock for uh, African Bombada and the Soul Sonic Force, and they did looking for, Searching for the Perfect Beat, and John's worked with bands like New Order and just tons of stuff. And I spent like two days in the studio with a pair of tape machines with him, watching him edit together a Bee Gees 12-inch. And we spent two days editing just one song and chopping it up and flipping around, you know, doing reverse edits and stuff like that. And that was all done with tape. It's a very painstaking process. For example, first thing you gotta do is figure out how long a beat is on a 30 IPS reel of tape. So you'd copy a bit of the beat onto, you have a, a playback reel, a playback machine and a record machine. So you'd come out of the playback machine into the record machine and you would make copies of stuff that you need onto the record machine chop it out and put it back into the master. And so you would record one beat, edit it out the reel, so you would have a piece of tape, let's say it's like 20 inches long, and that's how long one beat is, because you've marked it. Then it. If you want to figure out what your eighth note is, you would literally just fold a piece of tape in half. That's your eighth note. You fold a piece in half again, that's your 16th note, you fold it in half again, that's your 32nd note, and then you open it up and you tape it to the front edge of the studer. So anytime you wanted to do a 16th note drum fill, you'd make eight copies of a snare hit or someplace in the music where the snare is hitting along with the entire track. And you make eight copies of that and then you mark it on that little template you've made, chop out all the tape in between, edit it together and pop it back into the mix. So when it would go by, be like, I did an edit for Paula Abdul for this song called Cold Hearted, which is a really good example of what that was. But anyway, I did that for a few years, and I get paid on the side for that. And eventually people started saying, well, if he can edit, he can engineer. And so I started getting engineering gigs as well. And because Public Enemy would record at all hours of the day, sometimes one of the engineers at the studio would get burnt out and couldn't make it for a session. I just get a phone call, hey, they need somebody to come in and do vocals. You know, Nick has been up, up all night for like three days now. Could you come in and, and cut vocals? So I'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I remember a couple, on a couple occasions, the engineer would get up to go to the bathroom and never come back. <laughs> so I would, I would take over it. Wow. I'm still stunned from your tape edit part of that story. That's, yeah, for that's... anybody listening, if you want to understand what it is I'm talking about and hear it, go on YouTube or go online and do searches for guys like the Latin Rascals, Shep Pettibone, 
Chep Nunez, a bunch of people, they all did that. It was a very big thing back in the 80s. You know, Because back then, when I was working with PE, not only were they producing Public Enemy, but, but they would also get commissioned to do remixes for other people. So back in the 80s and early 90s, every time a band would release a single, there would always be like a dance or a hip-hop remix. And the Bomb Squad, Public Enemy's production team, would get hired to do that all the time. So I would wind up engineering for them on that. Or they would do a mix, and then they would hire me to do you know, a, a dub edit for them. So it, within a two, three-year period working with them, I got my name on singles for like Janet Jackson, Madonna, Paul Abdul, the Neville Brothers, Ziggy Marley, Bobby Brown, just all the really big artists back in the day. Wow. And it became a bit of a factory. They would call up and say, hey, we're doing a Prince remix on Friday. The tape will show up at the studio on Tuesday, and we need you to make the cassette. And what the cassette was, is I would sit in the studio with the multi-track, and I would just do a quick rough mix of like the entire track, and then do another mix of just the vocals and the drums, and another mix of just the vocals and the bass, and another mix of nothing but the vocals and a click track or whatever. And I would send them that cassette and they would use that to program beats against. So they would figure out what the tempo of the song was and they would program a drum beat and just play it along with the cassette that would make them to see if things would work. And then they would come in with a, a stack of cassettes and a stack of records and we'd spend the next three days taking songs apart and, pl- and putting them back together again. It was a lot of fun. What a know? process. I mean, just unlike anything I've experienced at all in audio. That's right. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So you actually made the transition from intern to tape editor or was it was and the, assistant kind of the same thing okay at the same time and then how long did you spend doing that gig tape editing gig kind of was constant up until let's say around 92 or so that's basically when i started engineering much more and then i went independent i left green street and because one of the guys in the bomb squad eric vietnam sadler was his name he and i went out for a drink one day and he was asking me so what do you see yourself doing in five years and i really hadn't thought about it and I said, well, probably still be here making maybe a little more money. He goes, nah, man, you shouldn't do that. You've got clients who are coming to the studio, not just because of the studio, but because they want to work with you. And you should get yourself a manager and maybe do an independent gig, which was a very scary thing to think about at the time. Because I was making kind of steady money. It wasn't great money, but it was good money. So he actually introduced me to my first manager. And shortly after meeting her, I did, let's see, kind of struggled for about a year. And then I got a chance to work with Soul Asylum. That was my first real big gig. This album, Grave Dances Union, had that song, Runaway Train, on it. Yeah, M- Michael Beinhorn produced. Yeah, that was a very interesting experience. <laughs> Michael's a madman. He's a, in, a, in a good way. I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way at all. But Michael <laughs> is, is, is a pretty serious producer. <laughs> He's relentless. At least back then he was. He was the kind of guy that if he had a sound in his head that he was picturing, he would stop at nothing until he heard that sound coming out of the speakers, which is very admirable because most guys, including myself, if you get like three quarters of what we're hearing, we're happy. But he's like, he was never happy in a good way. He was just relentless. I learned a lot in that record. That's such a great record. It's a great mm-hmm. sounding record, very punchy. and Yeah, Andy, Andy Wallace mixed it. He did an incredible job. Well, so you were surviving prior to leaving Green Street. Yeah, I mean, I was living in New York City. My rent at the time was like 500 bucks a month, utilities included. I had a really good, I had a real sweet deal. My roommate had squatted out this apartment apparently and it was rent controlled. And I think the rent for the entire apartment was 800 bucks, but I had the larger bedroom. So I had to pay a little more. That was 900 bucks. I paid five, he paid four. You should have never let go of that place. <laughs> uh, the only reason why I left is because he and his girlfriend got really serious and they were getting engaged and she was going to move in. So he was like, I got to kick you out. So <sighs> I went from paying 500 bucks a month to paying like 1200 bucks a month. That was about two or three years after I went independent. I was starting to make pretty good money. So it wasn't too much of a hardship, but... Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. How long did you stay in New York? God, up until about five years ago. Oh, okay. I'm just outside of Austin, Texas right now, but I was in the West Village for, God, about 15 years. And then I moved to downtown New York shortly after 9-11 and then Brooklyn for 90 years prior to moving here in Austin. So I kind of bounced all over the place. But yeah, I was a New York guy. 
Yeah. Were you, you, were you born and raised in New York? I was born and raised in Pelham, New York, which is a town just above the Bronx. So I was only a half hour train ride out of the city, which worked out really well for me when I was doing my internship at NYU. And while I was going to NYU, I was still living at home with my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. So while I was doing my internship for those two years, I didn't have to worry about like getting back to a dorm every night or paying food or paying rent and everything. So it was a very incredible, I had very supportive parents. So it was it was relatively easy. I was able to work my ass off and not have to worry about paying rent or whatever. I was able to basically work for free for a year. So. Well, so after working with Michael on Grave Dancers Union, the Soul Asylum record, mm-hmm. how did things look after that? Things looked, worked very well after that. Uh, I need to backtrack just a little bit because the, the way I got the Soul Song gig was pretty funny. There was a band called Too Much Joy, and they were on a label called Giant Records. And I took an interview with them to do an album with them to produce it. And I was pretty green at that point. I had my public enemy and hip hop background, but I didn't have much of a rock discography at that point. But they wanted to work with me. You know, it was amazing how many people wanted to work with me because I worked at Public Enemy. A lot of the rock bands, the alternative bands in the early 90s wanted to incorporate samples and beats and looping into their music, but they really didn't know how to do it. Because back then, looping and sampling was kind of a black art. Being able to take a sample something off the record and time stretch it and line it up with an existing beat was really difficult. You didn't have Ableton Live. You didn't have Pro Tools. You basically recorded it into a sampler that had no waveform display whatsoever, like an S900. And you had to manually, you know, with a knob, truncate the front and truncate the end and tune the sample so it was in the same tempo. Then you had to figure out a way of triggering it to the existing song and being able to nudge it back and forth in time using SMPTE offsets. It was a bit of a process. So that made my skills a little bit more valuable. And so this band, Too Much Joy, wanted me to work with them because they were thinking about doing stuff like that. But the label decided that they need to go with a producer who had a bigger name. So I didn't get the gig, but the woman who was their A&R person was, at the time, was Michael Beinhorn's wife. And so she literally had a copy of my discography, kind of like sitting in, in their apartment. And he picked it up and said, who's this guy? <laughs> I want to work with him. And then he had just gotten a solo song gig. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get this call from my manager at the time. And she says, uh, Michael Beinhorn wants to talk to you about doing solo asylum. And... At the time, Soul Simon had just gotten dropped off of A&M Records, and the demos for what eventually became Grave Dancers were being circulated all over the place. And a friend of mine who worked at Columbia actually gave me copies. So I knew I knew the demos even before I got the gig. And I, I would listen to those songs just because I thought they were great songs. So somewhere I have a cassette of the demos for all these songs. So I get this call, and my manager's like, hey, Michael Beinhorn wants to talk to you about doing Soul Asylum. I was like, okay, I'll do this record for free. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't ask for too much money and, you know, and make me lose the gig. I didn't do it for free. I got paid pretty well, but that was basically how I got that gig. And shortly after that, through a very roundabout way, I, I got a gig mixing a record for uh, Rick Ocasek from The Cars. He had the solo record and it was split in two. Like the a, side A was like all this pop stuff and side B was all this really weird avant-garde stuff that he likes to do. And so he needs somebody to mix the B side. Mike Shipley did the A side. I did, I mixed the B side. And Mary Campbell recommended me for the gig, the manager at Electric Lady Studios, which is the studio he liked to work at all the time. And he called her up and said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to mix this B side. And she's like, well, this guy, Chris Shaw, is mixing this really weird industrial record downstairs i think you get along and so one day out of the blue i get a call from one of my idols i get a call from rick Ocasek. i actually hung up on him because i thought it was a friend playing a prank on me i hung up on him i was like yeah yeah you're right and i clicked in the and I hung up the phone and i picked it up again it was him and i was like oh shit i'm so sorry <laughs> i thought you were a friend of mine and so i got to work with rick and then shortly after that he got the gig to do weezer and i went to his place to listen to the demos and i think i laughed the entire time i listened to the demos because the songs were just so geeky and funny and i was like well, i'll do this gig this is going to be a lot of fun i'll get to work with rick again the music is kind of funny and the tracks are actually kind of really good sounding so yeah i'll do it and glamo that was pretty much that record coupled with solo slime was pretty much the one that kind of pushed me way out front for a while what a streak public enemy and soul asylum and weezer and Mm -hmm. how did you feel at this time were you on a bit of a high oh absolutely i couldn't believe my good luck basically at this at that point in my career i was like i have no idea why this is happening to me but it is so i'm just gonna milk it for all it's worth until you know i think every engineer every producer has a little bit of imposter syndrome you know where you feel like i really shouldn't be here but i'm gonna hang on and stay here as long as i can I felt the same way when I did Dylan. Two days into Dylan, I was just waiting for somebody to, to burst into the control room and point at me and go, interloper! <laughs> 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 he does not belong here! You know, it's like that scene from the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland, you know, at the very end, he points the, at the I, girl, and his mouth opens up and a big noise comes out. I was like waiting for that to happen. That's exactly <laughs> when you said that I was thinking that. I was like, it's just like the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> yeah, and for those that don't know that, you gotta watch the, the end <laughs> yeah. of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland. (laughs) Yeah, incredible run there. Did you 
have any missteps? Did you make any colossal mistakes or faux pas that you look back on and go, oh my God, what an idiot. Oh, actually, I went from being an intern at Green Street. I got hired as an assistant after a massive fuck up on my end. At the, when I started at Green Street, there was one control room. About six months afterwards, they, ended, they built a second room. But at the time, it was only a one-room facility. And I had only been interning there for a few months, not even. And the chief engineer was a uh, Chinese guy by the name of Rod Wei, a brilliant engineer. I, everything I know, I learned from that guy. And we did an R&B session one day, and it was, a, it was a live session. And we had like heavy hitters like Omar Hakim and all these really big session guys cutting this ballad for this singer named Allison Williams. And then a couple days go by, and... They were going to be doing vocal overdubs the next day, like first thing in the morning. And Roddy was you know, finishing up another session. It was a Friday night. And he looked at his assistant. He said, okay, after we break down tonight, align the machine for tomorrow's session so that when we come in, we're, we can hit the ground running. And so he started to align the machine. And his girlfriend showed up you know, at the studio. At like, it was around 11 o'clock at night. She was a little half in a bag. She was a little drunk. He's like, come on, let's go out. We got blah, blah, blah. Let's go party. We're all waiting for you. And he looked at me and he goes, do you know how to line a tape machine? And I said, yeah, I know how to line a tape, tape machine. I'd never done it at the studio. I'd done it at NYU. But I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, all right, I'll set up the tones, do the record alignment. Here's, and he handed me a tweaker and left. And for anybody who's never aligned a tape machine, Real One usually has your tones on it. And the way the tape is set up is that the first 30 seconds to one minute of a tape is called a record pad. And that's a piece of blank tape that you use to do record alignment. After that are the tones, your reference tones. And then there's a leader. And after that's your first song. Now at NYU, for some stupid reason, they put the tones first, then the record pad, and then it would be your first track. So he just finished doing the playback alignment from the tones. He said, do the record alignment. So in my mind, like, okay, the next thing on this reel is going to be the pad. When it wasn't the pad, it was actually the first song. And I blissfully and unawarely just went into record and recorded over, started doing alignment, and I'm waiting for the next leader tape to show up, and it's not showing up. And about a minute and a half later, I hit play on the machine, and the song that we spent all day, a couple of days before, just came blaring out of the speakers, like the first chorus. It basically erased the first minute and a half of the song. And I just completely lost it. And the only person at the studio at the time was just me and in the office was the owner of the studio. And I realized I just cost the studio about six grand in, in session fees and musician fees. Of course, the first take was the one they, they decided to keep. So my choices were either just put the tweaker down and leave the studio and never come back or fess up at my mistake. And I fessed up to my mistake. And I went to the, the office and I told the studio owner, and I was like, hey, I, I think I just you know wiped off this track. And he said, right, let's go check it out. And he went in the control room and he played the tape. And he's like, yeah, you screwed up big time. And I said, well, you don't have to tell me you never want to see me again because I obviously am not, should not be here anymore. And he goes, no, no, no. It's actually, I'm going to hire you right now because tomorrow the shit is going to hit the fan and someone's got to be there to take it and it's going to be you. And he says, so, <laughs> this is the first reason. The other two reasons why I'm hiring you is because number one, number one, you have to take the shit when it hits the fan. Number two, you owe me. <laughs> I'm hiring you, but I'm not going to pay you for at least a year or whatever, for like six months, whatever, because you just cost me all this money. And he says, and number three, I know you're never going to do it again. He says, I know from this point on out, whenever you put a, a tape on a machine that you're going to break into a set, whenever you see a machine and record ready, you're going to get really nervous and be absolutely certain that you're not recording over anything. And so this guy by the name of Steve Loeb, who owns Green Street, I basically owe my career to him. He basically could have stopped my career in his tracks, but he didn't. He had the foresight to say, well, all right, well, I'll give this kid another chance. And he's absolutely right. To this day, when I'm recording an analog and I put a, you know, a track and record ready, I'm just completely paranoid that I'm not like erasing over stuff. So I think that's also the reason why I'm not very hard on my assistants. I'm not like a real mean guy to work with in the studio because people make mistakes. I don't get too angry because I pretty much made the biggest mistake there ever was. I can't really ride somebody's ass if they made a very minor mistake. Well, anybody that hears this interview <laughs> who is going to work with you in the future can walk in and go, I'm going to work for you because I know the biggest <laughs> mistake you ever made. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't tell that story for years, obviously. I didn't start telling that story in public until maybe about three years ago. But I figured this far into my career, who cares? I've pretty much overcame that big black mark on my mistake. But as far as other mistakes, I've said no to a couple of records I shouldn't have said no to that one of being big hits. As every engineer has that story. I took a meeting with an A&R guy in... LA around the same time as I did Soul Asylum. And he's like, yeah, we got this band. They're getting ready to do their second record. And they kind of want to go in a different direction, but here's their first record. Check it out. They're interested in work with you because of all the public enemy stuff you did. And I went home and I listened to it and it was a Southern California ska band. Now I like ska. I like like original two-tone British ska. But for me, American ska just never seemed genuine enough to me. And this band was just all, it was a ska band, a Southern California ska band. 
But it turns out their second record is nothing like that because the second record was called Tragic Kingdom. It was the second No Doubt record. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you said Southern California Sky, I was like, oh, it's No Doubt. I I was like, oh. And then the other one I turned down, again, I I got asked to work with the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones on that one record that had their one big hit on it. And I was actually working next door at Bearsville, they were tracking. I was in the B room and they were in the A room tracking with Slade and Coldary. And I actually heard the hit single through the door and I went, Oops, I shouldn't have said no to that. <laughs> I know an engineer who said no to Hootie, so you know, it's not all that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't possibly predict. Yeah. I want to just backtrack a bit. So after recording over the track, how did the shit hit the fan the next day? Well, by that point, it was like three o'clock in the morning. And again, I was still living at home with my mom and dad. So I missed the last train out in New York. So I just had to sleep at the studio. The next morning, starting around nine, the shit started hitting the fan because the studio manager had to call the label. Then the label had to call the producer. And uh, it was horrible. And then about half an hour before the chief engineer showed up, the studio manager's like, you know what? You should just go home because when he comes to that door, he's probably going to punch you. So just get out of here. And then I showed up, I, I went back home, got some sleep, came back that night, and I walked to the front door. I got the meanest air from like the artist, the producer, the engineer, but I happily sat there and took food orders for them and, you know, cleaned the bathrooms and all that stuff because I was still an intern at the time. But hey, you live and you learn. So with all these heavy records under your belt after a period of time, did you go through any period of big ego in your mind? And did you had, have to get taken down from a pedestal at any point? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I still, it's not very humble to say that you're humble, but I try to be. Because <laughs> I know how lucky I am to be able to make a living as a recording engineer and as a producer. It's, they say, you know, if you get a job doing what you love to do, it's not a job at all. And it's, I, I realize how fortunate I am to be making a living doing this. And I appreciate every moment of it. And I know that any day now it could just end. I think everybody has their periods where they're doing lots of work and then they're having periods where they're not working at all. And I've had my ups and downs. And maybe for a little bit, I might have had an ego, but I came to the realization that even though we as recording engineers are artistic and that we are artists in our own right, at least we think we are artists in our own right, that it's, we are a service industry. It's our job to make really good records for other people. And with that in mind, I don't think there really is room for ego. I only pull out an attitude if I just think I need to do it in order to, to get things done. But I, I rarely do it. I try not to. I just think that your work speaks for yourself. I think I learned that because I had a manager, my, my very first manager who had gotten me the, the Weezer and Soul Asylum gigs. That manager had a bit of an ego problem of her own. She had a bit of an attitude problem and she was a bit aggressive and abrasive with some of the labels. And I'm not going to tell the story because it's a really long one, but the long and short of it is that because of her business style and her management style, she lost me a Michael Jackson record, an opportunity to work with Michael. And I fired her very shortly after that. So I learned from that that we definitely are in a service industry and being abrasive and egotistical gets you pretty much gets you nowhere. Yeah. Even though there are loads of producers and engineers, you know, which I'm not going to mention my name, obviously, but there are lots, a lot of them that have a reputation for being that way. And the people just don't want to work with people like that, I don't think. I think, how can an artist not want to work with somebody who's affable and friendly and open and enthusiastic compared to a guy who's going to sit there and be a dictator and say, no, you're going to play it this way. This is how it goes. This is how I've been making records for years. I get in on a session and the only thing I ask of the bands that I work with is like, I've got ideas. Only thing I'm asking you is to try them. And if you don't like them and you've got a great reason for it, let's move on, you know. But I think we should try th- try doing a song in this style or this, maybe we should try this kind of a guitar part. Let's just try it. And if you really are vehemently against it, fine. Then come up with something that's better and, and tell me why. And the other thing is what keeps me from developing too much of an attitude is that I seem to learn something new with every mix and every record and every session that I do. I think every day that you're working, you should always keep your eyes open to be learning something. And I think that kind of keeps your attitude in check because then you realize that you don't know it all. Yeah. So what was the cause of leaving New York and going to Austin? Well, my wife has a daughter and two grandkids who live in Northeast Texas near the Arkansas border. And as they were getting older, she was missing out on big events in their lives, you know, and she wanted to be closer to them. And I was vehemently against moving to Texas. And then the tipping point was that a very good friend of ours who's a real estate agent who sold us the condo we owned in Brooklyn 
basically wrote down a number and told us how much our condo was worth at the time. And it was almost double what we originally paid for it. And this was when my wife was kind of making noises about moving. And it took about three months of cajoling. But at that point, I had been 85% of my work was mixing in the box in Pro Tools from the back room in our apartment in Brooklyn. And I thought to myself, well, you know, the only thing that I really need to work keep working is I need to be somewhat near a studio and I need to have a fast internet connection and I'm golden so I can pretty much live anywhere and so the compromise we made was well if we move to Texas I'm not going to move to northeast Texas because there's nothing up there musically for me so let's try either moving to Austin or somewhere near or spitting distance of Austin so that I can get into a studio if I had to do tracking work and so we wound up in this town outside of Austin called Bastrop and it's great I love it owning a home I've got a pool my dog's got a yard to run around in uh, it's quiet it's great and we've been down here for like five years now and every time I go back to New York I just don't recognize it anymore it's very strange like it's changed so much in the, in the past five years it's unbelievable Oh, yeah. I, I think a lot of big cities are going through that transition in, at this point in time. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so... Your day-to-day -day work now is centered around primarily mixing? Yeah, pretty much. I'd say like 90% of my work is all mixing. And you're mixing at home in the box? In the box. I go outside the box for a few things. I've got some synths and some filters and some compressors and EQs that are kind of weird and have their own sound. And I'll occasionally I go out of the box to process through that, but I come back in. But I pretty much mix, I'd say like 99% in the box. And how are you getting work these days? Work comes from all over. It's funny you should say that because right now I'm in the middle of mixing a, a record for a Moroccan musician, some like very traditional Moroccan music. And that came to me through some work I did with a Canadian artist and that record label, an A&R guy knew some guy who was working on this Moroccan record. He recommended me. And it's very strange because like emails are going halfway around the world and back again and tracks are going back and forth around the world. It's just, it's mind blowing to me how how far the technology has come since I started in 86, which was back then was all analog. Yeah. You know, Pro Tools really didn't enter the scene until around like the mid nineties. And I remember I did a, a mix for a, an Australian band at the warehouse in Canada in, in Vancouver. And we realized when we were mixing this track, we were missing the vocal, like our background vocal track. And this is like 90, 97, 98. And the guy in the band called up his brother who ran their studio in, in Sydney and said, hey, man, I need you to send me the, you know, the files for the background vocals. We don't have them. And two hours later, because it took that long to get like this two-minute file, you know, because the intent speed is so slow, I had this drive and I, I had this CD with the vocal on it, you know, that I was able to import. And I was like, this is insane. Because I remember doing sessions that ran like for three or four days straight where you do a rough mix and the guy would come by and pick it up, the half inch, and courier it and get on a plane and go to the LA and then wait and then get more tracks and get back on a plane and courier it back to New York. And I mean, now you're, things are just being done instantaneously. The kids today just don't know how good they have it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, but the work comes just from word of mouth and the types of records I do vary stylistically and budget-wise. It, it's all over the map. I, I work with unsigned indie bands all the time, you know, for very small budgets, up to guys like Dylan doing box sets and reissues that pay top dollar. So it's it's a wide range of, of budgets and styles and, and sound quality, <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. Well, so you've been in this for a while. You've done some big records. You've, you've had quite the trajectory. What has been your overarching philosophy about money, money management, and survival. You know, have you have you spent every dollar you've made on gear? Have you been a good saver? What's your advice to others? The advice I can give to everybody is pay your taxes quarterly. 
<laughs> I just did that. Because <laughs> if you don't, all of a sudden you get this really big bill in April. I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are engineers from other markets, like Nashville, California, and stuff like that. Like, I have a lot of friends who came up around the same time I did who actually own big studios now and stuff and it always freaks me out it's like well, how'd you like earn that much money to afford all that and but I have to take a step back for years in my career I was single self-employed and living in New York City so I'm getting hit with two tax bills I have huge rents to pay big mortgages to pay so I never was able to like amass and accumulate a lot of gear so as far as accumulating gear is concerned, just buy pieces that I only buy pieces that I know I'm, I'm going to use until the day I die. So I, I don't buy like the latest thing just because it's the latest thing. In fact, most of the gear I have in my racks here at home is over 15 or 20 years old at this point. Because yeah. they're, they're just, they're just they're my workhorse pieces. I probably spend more money on software than anything else. Yeah. And it's really weird that I spend the most money on software for pair software than anything else. You know, things that do really incredibly life-saving you know, audio repair work. I also have a lot of endorsements as well. It's easier to get software endorsements than it is to get hardware endorsements because they could just hand you an NFR code to author, yeah. authorize stuff. And I do a lot of beta testing for guys like Slate and Isotope and a few other companies. But as far as money management is concerned, just hold on to every dollar, invest it in a smart fashion, and, I don't know, buy gold. <laughs> <laughs> Buy gold, buy silver. <laughs> buy silver, you know, build that bomb shelter for the apocalypse that's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. How involved in the Austin music scene are you? A little more than I was when I first started. As soon as I got here, somehow the Recording Academy, the local chapter, found out that I was here. And um, I was a member in New York only for a couple years because I wasn't very involved. And then once I got down here, they asked me if I wanted to join. And I'm actually on the board of governors here in, in Texas. Basically, your, your term as a, as a governor is two years, and somebody had to leave halfway through the term. So they asked me if I wanted to come in and, and finish out one person's term, and then I got reelected again. And that was really crucial for me, because I came down here and I knew nobody. You know, I only knew, let's see, uh, that engineer Tim Palmer, who did like old yeah. Pearl Jam. I know, I know Tim, and mastering engineer Chris Athens, who is massive. He's, every hip-hop record that comes out it goes through his mastering setup. And Chris is from New York originally as well. And then I met another mastering engineer, this guy by the name of Steven Cerecia, here in Bastrop, and he introduced me to a few people. So now I know quite a few people here in Austin. I've actually done a little bit of work with that band Spoon, who's oh yeah, big heavy hitters down here, and a few other people. And I've had a chance to work at a couple of studios down here. It's a, it's a very vibrant scene down here. I was pretty shocked, but it's, it's basically considered the music capital of the world. You know, when you get into Austin, like you can't spit without hitting a band playing in some bar or in some club. And I just wish, as far as touring bands, I wish more bands would tour through Austin. But, you know, that's the one thing about, I really miss about New York. Cause any band that was on tour would come through New York at some point or another. And what I really miss is, like, on a Friday afternoon, getting a phone call from some band I work with. It's like, hey, we're playing uh, Webster Hall. You know, yeah, we'll put you on the list. Come on down. So I was like, every other week I was going to a show. I don't do that as much down here as I used to, but it's great. I really like it down here. Um, so I've been here for five years and I've made quite a few contacts. Plus, it's a little warmer than New York. Yeah, I mean, I opened up my pool in... Actually, I'm opening up my pool tomorrow. <laughs> so, and I swim from April to October. <laughs> ah, that's amazing. Yeah. What is your thoughts on networking with bands and networking with those you want to work with? Yeah, the best networking tool is the work that you do. Mm -hmm. I get cold called out of the blue a lot. And people just say, hey, we've, we've heard this record that you did with this band. You know, Do you want to work with us? You never know where your next record's going to come from or what the connection is. So I don't nearly, I don't have to network as much as I used to. Like when I started out and I was working at Green Street and then I first went independent, I was like at every show, at every club, networking with, you know, this is back when A&R guys actually would show up at clubs. And so you yeah. run into the same people all the time. And so eventually they, they start recognizing you, remembering you and saying, well, yeah, he was at that game. Oh, I remember him. He, oh, he, that's right. He, that's the guy that did that record. And I've seen him at the club. Oh yeah, he's a really cool guy. Maybe I should hook him up with this band. But now that I've been doing this for so long, it's just networking isn't, I mean, it's still crucial, but it's not as as important, but it, it is important. It used to be, occupy a lot more of my time, but not as much as it used to. Because now networking is just all done with social media. I think I spend like an hour every day just slogging through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and doing posts and stuff like that. Once in a blue moon, I do like a quick tutorial video and I'll just post up on my website just to garner traffic and stuff. And it's interesting that with my website, I can actually, I can look at the statistic. I can see 
when people are hitting my website and where they're coming in from. For example, I'm doing this, this Moroccan record. And all of a sudden, I, I'm looking at my website logs and there's like 3,500 hits you know, from Morocco. No, you know, no, I'm sorry, 350 <laughs> hits from Morocco from people just saying, who's this Chris Shaw guy? Who's this? What's that? So it's funny. I, I can always tell when a phone call is going to come. because I just see like, oh, I'm getting a lot of action in France. I'll bet you somebody from France will be calling in about a week. And sure enough, you know, somebody called up. <laughs> uh, so uh, we were looking at your website and we noticed that you did this Super Furry Admirals record. Uh, we have to spend... <laughs> You know, so it's it's more online now networking is than it is face to face. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. What a story and what a what a journey you've had. It's it's fascinating to hear. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. All right. And for those that want to check Chris out, you can go to chrisshawmix.com. Okay. So that'll be in the show notes. So be sure and stop by and check out Chris's discography. And you can read up more on Chris on his website. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Chris Shaw here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me here today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. And I want to thank everybody involved that helped out with the show. That includes Mr. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, Chuck Smith for his voice, Anne-Marie Plo for her editing. And I want to thank you for coming back week after week. Spread the word and tell all your friends. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.